Chapters 34 and 35 of The Angel of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Angel of Terror by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 34. There was lying in Monaco Harbor a long white boat with a stumpy mast, which delighted in the name of Jungle Queen. It was the property of an impecunious English nobleman who made a respectable income from letting the vessel on hire. Mrs. Cole Mortimer had seemed surprised at the reasonable fee demanded for two months' use until she had seen the boat the day after her arrival at Cap Martin. She had pictured a large and commodious yacht, yet she found a reasonably sized motor launch with a well-decked cabin. The description in the agent's catalogue that the Jungle Queen would sleep for was probably based on the experience of a party of young roisterers who had once hired the vessel. Supposing that the four were reasonably drunk or heavily drugged, it was possible for them to sleep on board the Jungle Queen. Normally, two persons have found it difficult, though by laying diagonally across the cabin, one small man could have slumbered without discomfort. The Jungle Queen had been a disappointment to Jean also. Her busy brain had conceived an excellent way of solving her principal problem. But a glance at the Jungle Queen told her that the money she had spent on hiring the launch, and it was little better, was wasted. She herself hated the sea and had so little faith in the utility of the boat that she had even dismissed the youth who attended to its well-worn engines. Mr. Marcus Stepney, who was mildly interested in motorboating and considerably interested in any form of amusement which he could get at someone else's expense, had so far been the sole patron of the Jungle Queen. It was his practice to take the boat out every morning for a two-hour sail, generally alone, though sometimes he would take somebody whose acquaintance he had made, and who was destined to be a source of profit to him in the future. Jean's talk of the caveman method of wooing had made a big impression upon him, emphasized as it had been, and still was, by the two angry red scars across the back of his hand. Things were not going well with him. The supply of rich and trusting youths had suddenly dried up. The little games in his private sitting room had dwindled to feeble proportions. He was still able to eke out a living, but his success at his private seances had been counterbalanced by the heavy losses at the public tables. It is a known fact that people who live outside the law keep to their own plane. The swindler very rarely commits acts of violence. The burglar who practices card sharping as a sideline is virtually unknown. Mr. Stepney lived on a plausible tongue and a pair of highly dexterous hands. It had never occurred to him to go beyond his own sphere, and indeed violence was as repugnant to him as it was vulgar. Yet the caveman's suggestion appealed to him. He had a way with women of a certain kind, and if his confidence had been rather shaken by Jean's savagery and Lydia's indifference, he had not altogether abandoned the hope that both girls in their turn might be conquered by the adoption of the right method. The method for dealing with Jean he had at the back of his mind. As for Lydia, Jean's suggestion was very attractive. It was after a very heavily unprofitable night spent at the Nice Casino that he took his courage in both hands and drove to the Villa Casa. He was an early arrival, but Lydia had already finished her breakfast, and she was painfully surprised to see him. 
"'I'm not swimming today, Mr. Stepney,' she said, "'and you don't look as if you were either.' He was dressed in perfectly fitting white duck trousers, white shoes, and a blue nautical coat with brass buttons. A yachtsman's cap was set at an angle on his dark head. "'No, I'm going out to do a little fishing,' he said, "'and I was wondering whether, in your charity, you would accompany me.' She shook her head. "'I'm sorry. I have another engagement this morning,' she said. "'Can you break it?' he pleaded. "'As an especial favor to me? I've made all preparations, and I've got a lovely lunch on board. You said you would come fishing with me one day.' "'I'd like to,' she confessed. "'But I really have something very important to do this morning.' She did not tell him that her important duty was to sit on the lover's chair. Somehow her trip seemed just a little silly in the cold, clear light of the morning. "'I could have you back in time,' he begged. "'Do come along, Mrs. Meredith. You're going to spoil my day.' "'I'm sure Lydia wouldn't be so unkind.' Jean had made her appearance as they were speaking. "'What is the scheme, Lydia?' "'Mr. Stepney wants me to go out in the yacht,' said the girl, and Jean smiled. "'I'm glad you call it a yacht,' she said dryly. "'You're the second person who has so described it. "'The first was the agent. "'Take her tomorrow, Marcus.' "'There was a glint of amusement in her eyes, "'and he felt that she knew what was at the back of his mind. "'All right,' he said in a tone which suggested "'that it was anything but all right, and added, "'I saw you flying through Nice this morning "'with that yellow-faced chauffeur of yours, Jean.' "'Were you up so early?' she asked carelessly. "'I wasn't dressed. I was looking out of the window. "'My room faces the promenade de Aglaisi. "'I don't like that fellow.' "'I shouldn't let him know,' said Jean coolly. "'He's very sensitive. "'There are so many fellows that you dislike, too.' "'I don't think you ought to allow him so much freedom,' Marcus Stepney went on. "'He was not in an amiable frame of mind.' and the knowledge that he was annoying the girl encouraged him. "'If you give these French chauffeurs an inch, they'll take a kilometer.' "'I suppose they would,' said Jean thoughtfully. "'How is your poor hand, Marcus?' He growled something under his breath, and thrust his hand deep into the pocket of his reefer coat. "'It is quite well,' he snapped, and went back to Monaco, and his solitary boat trip, flaming. "'One of these days,' he muttered as he tuned up the motor. He did not finish his sentence, but sent the nose of the Jungle Queen at full speed for the open sea. Jean's talk with Morden that morning had not been wholly satisfactory. She had calmed his suspicions to an extent, but he still harped upon the letter, and she had promised to give it to him that evening. "'My dear,' she said, "'you are too impulsive.' too gallic i had a terrible scene with my father last night he wants me to break off the engagement told me what my friends in london would say and how i should be a social outcast and and you jean he asked i told him that such things did not trouble me she said and her lips drooped sadly I know I cannot be happy with anybody but you, Francis, and I am willing to face the sneers of London, even the hatred and scorn of my father, for your sake. 
He would have seized her hand, though they were in the open road, but she drew away from him. Be careful, Francis, she warned him. Remember that you have a very little time to wait. I cannot believe my good fortune, he babbled as he brought the car up the gentle incline to Monte Carlo. He dodged an early morning tram, missing an unsuspecting passenger who had come around back of the tram car by inches and set the big Italia up the Palm Avenue into the town. It is incredible, and yet I always thought some great thing would happen to me. And Jean, I have risked so much for you. I would have killed Madame in London if she had not been dragged out of the way by that old man, and I did not watch for you and the man Meredith. Hush, she said in a low voice. Let us talk about something else. Shall I see your father? I am sorry for what I did last night, he said when they were nearing the villa. "'Father has taken his motor bicycle and gone for a trip into Italy,' she said. "'No, I do not think I should speak to him, even if he were here. "'He may come around in time, Francis. "'You can understand that this is terribly distressing. "'He hoped I would make a great marriage. "'You must allow for a father's disappointment.' "'He nodded. "'He did not drive her to the house, but stopped outside the garage.' Remember, at half-past ten you will take Madame Meredith to the lover's chair. You know the place? I know it very well, he said. It is a difficult place to turn. I must take her almost into San Remo. Why does she want to go to the lover's chair? I thought only the cheap people went there. You must not tell her that, she said sharply. Besides, I myself have been there. And who did you think of, Jean? he asked suddenly. She lowered her eyes. I will not tell you now, she said and ran into the house. Francis stood gazing after her until she had disappeared. And then, like a man waking from a trance, he turned to the mundane business of filling his tank. End of chapter 34. Chapter 35. Lydia was dressing for her journey when Mrs. Cole Mortimer came into the saloon where Jean was writing. There's a telephone call from Monte Carlo, she said. Somebody wants to speak to Lydia. Jean jumped up. I'll answer it, she said. The voice at the other end of the wire was harsh and unfamiliar to her. I want to speak to Mrs. Meredith. Who is it? asked Jean. It is a friend of hers said the voice. Will you tell her? The business is rather urgent. I'm sorry, said Jean, but she's just gone out. She heard an exclamation of annoyance. Do you know where she's gone? asked the voice. I think she's gone into Monte Carlo, said Jean. If I miss her, will you tell her not to go out again until I come to the house? Certainly, said Jean politely and hung up the telephone. Was that a call for me? It was Lydia's voice from the head of the stairs. Yes, dear. I think it was Marcus Stepney who wanted to speak to you. I told him you'd gone out, said Jean. You didn't wish to speak to him. Good heavens, no, said Lydia. You are sure you won't come with me? I'd rather stay here, said Jean truthfully. The car was at the door, and Morden, looking unusually spruce in his white dust coat, stood by the open door. "'How long shall I be away?' asked Lydia. 
about two hours, dear. You'll be very hungry when you come back, said Jean, kissing her. Now, mind you think of the right man, she warned her in mockery. I wonder if I shall, said Lydia quietly. Jean watched the car out of sight and then went back to the saloon. She was hardly seated before the telephone rang again, and she anticipated Mrs. Cole Mortimer and answered it. "'Mrs. Meredith has not gone into Monte Carlo,' said the voice. "'Her car has not been seen on the road.' "'Is that Mr. Jacks?' asked Jean sweetly. "'Yes, miss,' was the reply. "'Mrs. Meredith has come back now. I'm dreadfully sorry. I thought she had gone into Monte Carlo. She's in her room with a bad headache. Will you come and see her?' There is an interval of silence. "'Yes, I will come,' said Jaggs. Twenty minutes later, a taxicab set down the old man at the door, and a maid admitted him and brought him into the saloon. Jean rose to meet him. She looked at the bowed figure of old Jaggs, took him all in from his iron-gray hair to his dusty shoes, and then she pointed to a chair. "'Sit down,' she said, and old Jaggs obeyed. "'You've something very important to tell Mrs. Meredith, I suppose.' "'I will tell her that myself, miss,' said the old man gruffly. "'Well, before you tell her anything, I want to make a confession.' She smiled down on old Jags and pulled up a chair so that she faced him. He was sitting with his back to the light, holding his battered hat on his knees. "'I've brought you up under false pretenses,' she said, "'because Mrs. Meredith isn't here at all.' "'Not here,' he said, half-rising.' No, she's gone for a ride with our chauffeur. But I wanted to see you, Mr. Jaggs, because... She paused. I realize that you're a dear friend of hers and have her best interest at heart. I don't know who you are, she said, shaking her head. But I know, of course, that Mr. John Glover has employed you. What's this all about? He asked gruffly. What have you to tell me? I don't know how to begin, she said, biting her lips. It is such a delicate matter that I hate talking about it at all. But the attitude of Mrs. Meredith to our chauffeur, Morden, is distressing, and I think Mr. Glover should be told. He did not speak, and she went on. These things do happen, I know, she said, but I am happy to say that nothing of that sort has come into my experience. And, of course, Morden is a good-looking man, and she is young. What are you talking about? His tone was dictatorial and commanding. I mean, she said, that I fear poor Lydia is in love with Morden. He sprang to his feet. It's a damned lie, he said, and she stared at him. Now tell me what has happened to Lydia Meredith he went on, and let me tell you this, Jean Briggerland, that if one hair of that girl's head is harmed, I will finish the work I began out there, he pointed to the garden, and strangle you with my own hands. She lifted her eyes to his and dropped them again and began to tremble. Then turning suddenly on her heel, she fled to her room, locked the door, and stood against it, white and shaking. For the second time in her life, Jean Briggerland was afraid. She heard his quick footsteps in the passage outside, and there came a tap on her door. "'Let me in,' growled the man, and for a second she almost lost control of herself. 
she looked wildly around the room for some way of escape and then as a thought struck her she ran quickly into the bathroom which opened from her room a large sponge was set to dry by an open window and this she seized on a shelf by the side of the bath was a big bottle of ammonia and averting her face she poured its contents upon the sponge until it was sodden then with the dripping sponge in her hand she crept back turned the key and opened the door the old man burst in then before he realized what was happening the sponge was pressed against his face the pungent drug almost blinded him its paralyzing fumes brought him on his knees he gripped her wrist and tried to press away her hand but now her arm was round his neck and he could not get the purchase with a groan of agony he collapsed on the floor in that instant she was on him like a cat her knee between his shoulders half unconscious he felt his hands drawn to his back and felt something lashing them together she was using the silk girdle which had been about her waist and her work was effective presently she turned him over on his back the ammonia was still in his eyes and he could not open them the agony was terrible almost unendurable with her hand under his arm he struggled to his feet he felt her lead him somewhere and suddenly he was pushed into a chair she left him alone for a little while but presently came back and began to tie his feet together it was a most amazing single-handed capture even jean could never have imagined the ease with which she could gain her victory i'm sorry to hurt an old man there was a sneer in her voice which he had not heard before but if you promise not to shout i will not gag you he heard the sound of running water and presently a, with a wet cloth she began wiping his eyes gently you will be able to see in a minute said jean's cool voice in the meantime you'll stay here until i send for the police for all his pain he was forced to chuckle until you send for the police eh you know me i only know you're a wicked old man who broke into this house whilst i was alone and the servants were out she said you know why i've come he insisted i've come to tell mrs meredith that a hundred thousand pounds have been taken from her bank on a forged signature how absurd said jean she was sitting on the edge of the bath looking at the bedraggled figure how could anybody draw money from mrs meredith's bank whilst her dear friend and guardian jack glover is in london to see that she is not robbed old jaggs glared up at her from his inflamed eyes you know very well he said distinctly that i am jack glover and that i have not left monte carlo since lydia meredith arrived End of chapter 35